0: I'd like to invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7, we'll begin our reading in verse 13, all the way to the end of the chapter, under the heading of The Christian's Contradiction. The Christian's Contradiction from Romans chapter 7. Let's begin our reading now. Romans chapter 7, verse 13. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Here ends the reading of God's Word this morning. Our sermon title this morning is The Christian's Contradiction. And my most dear friend, friends, life is full of contradictions. We want to lose weight, but we eat junk food. It's a contradiction. We want to retire early, but that boat is pretty alluring. It's a contradiction. Boys and girls, our parents tell us to clean up their room. But the kitchen and the garage are a mess. It's a contradiction. We boast about our friends. We boast about our family. But then one minute, the next minute, we complain about them. A contradiction is when we have two elements, a sentence for for instance, two things which are opposed to one another. And life is full of these contradictions, but the Christian lives in the greatest of contradictions. We live in the contradiction that Christ lives within us, but so does sin. This is the subject that Paul takes up in Romans 7, that great contradiction that as Christians, we do wish and intend to do good, but so often, we choose to do what is evil. And we all know what this contradiction is like. When we do precisely what we do not wish to do, and then we fail to do in what we intend intend to do. That's what Paul confesses in verse 18. I have the desire to do what is right, but I cannot carry it out, he says. See, everyone faces internal conflicts. But what I want to suggest this morning is that the Christian faces the greatest of conflicts. How many teenagers in this room this morning know that it's right to obey your parents, but when it comes time to obey them, you feel like you can't? We as Christians know that pride and vanity and lust are not right. But there seems to be an irresistible attraction to it. Have you experienced this? This is what we call the doctrine of indwelling sin. The doctrine of indwelling sin. Paul expresses this in verse 15, I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. John Hayden said, indwelling sin is the most unhappy experience of all good men and what we will experience while we continue in this world. Now, I don't want to make this the subject of our time together this morning, but Romans 7, Paul's comments in Romans 7 are the subject of maybe the greatest debate in the New Testament. Paul speaks with such vivid language About his struggle with sin here, that he almost seems to contradict himself earlier in the book of Romans. Remember, in Romans chapter 5, Paul said justification brings peace with God and peace with this world. And then in chapter 6, he says that the Christian is free from sin. So, how do we square those comments, which we've reflected on these last few months, with Romans 7, verse 24, when he says, Wretched man that I am! Who will deliver me from this body of death? Is Paul contradicting himself? And Paul, this has led many Pauline scholars to say that Paul is actually writing from the perspective of someone who has not yet come to Christ. I need you to catch that this morning. There is great debate between, it. really the question is, is Paul writing as a believer or an unbeliever here? And I think Paul is writing as somebody who is in the state of grace. A believer. And he is expressing a contradiction we all live in. That we all enjoy salvation in Christ, if you're a Christian, but also taste the bitterness of defeat. That we have been liberated from the power of sin, but we have not yet been liberated from the presence of sin. We live in two worlds. In Christ, we are more than conquerors. In Christ, we are liberated. But sanctification, the process of getting rid of that sin in our hearts, is a slow, drawn-out process. Now, I mentioned this passage is the great, a great subject of debate. But often in debate, we lose the point, don't we? What is Paul's point here? It's not that we can have a discussion or a dissertation. Paul's point is to encourage the Roman believers in Christ. There is hope for the Christian who lives in the contradiction. That even though there is a conflict between our spirits and sin, We need to remember that this conflict is only possible for those in whom the Holy Spirit is renewing. These are words of hope for believers who feel defeated by sin. Who feel like they can't break the power of sin. Who don't practice good. Who relapse into habitual sin. Paul says here, there is hope for the wretched man. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is what we need to see together that there is a contradiction that believers experience. And it's distinct from the contradictions we experience in this world. But God has provided a remedy. That's our theme. Paul addresses that distinct contradiction and its remedy. I want to show you three things the real me, the war within and the agony of struggle, and the joy of victory. Let's look at the real me. In Romans 7, verses 14-25, through 25, Paul is laying out in front of you his inner struggle with sin. In the ESV translation, Paul refers to himself in these verses 37 times. He uses the word I 24 times. Me, my, myself, 13 times. And even if you look with me at verse 22, he says, in my inner being, he rejoices in the law, which is like saying, in my heart of hearts, or in my true self. Paul is showing us the real Paul this morning. And it's important that we determine exactly who Paul is. Well, you might say, or maybe your kids will say, why was Pastor asking who Paul is? He's Apostles of the Gentiles. He's one of the founding fathers of the church. It should be obvious, but I'm again referring to that question, is Paul writing as a believer or an unbeliever? But look how Paul begins. Verse 14. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin it is the majority reformed position that this is the confession of a believer of someone who knows jesus and i want to show you why i think that's true you know paul as he's speaking in these verses the first thing i want you to see is that he sounds like a man describing his current condition in life right look at verse 14 I am of the flesh. Do a quick scan through these verses. How many times does Paul say, I do, I want, I know, I hate. He's writing in what we call the present tense. Which is describing his current reality. His daily situation. What Paul is telling us is that as long as we will be living, we will always be sinning. And as long as we are sinning, we must always be repenting. Paul included. Paul's struggle with sin is the same struggle that you and I face on a daily basis. Now Satan wants to tell you, because you struggle with sin, you cannot belong to God. He whispers in the ears of Christians, Everyone else is better than you. They don't struggle with sin. You couldn't possibly belong to Christ with that sin. But if you are hearing these lies this morning, listen to me today. The struggle with sin doesn't mean that you are lost. The struggle with sin means that you are found. Remember that before we knew Christ, we didn't struggle with sin, did we? Before the renovation of our hearts, our sin nature was our only nature. But now that you have a new heart, there is spiritual warfare. The struggle to not be angry, the struggle to not lie, the struggle to not uh, covet, in the present tense, is evidence of a changed heart. This is the first reason Paul is a believer this morning because he is struggling through his sin. Notice he loves the Bible. Verse 13, he explains how sin twists God's good law to produce in him death. And then in verse 14, he says, but we know that the law is spiritual. What do unbelievers think about God's law? If you flip back to Romans 1, verse 18 this morning. It says that unbelievers suppress the truth of God and unrighteousness. If you flip to chapter two verses 17 through 34, Paul says unbelievers claim to keep God's law, but they really don't. If you flip to Romans eight verse 7 so flip one chapter earlier Paul says we know that the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God it does not submit to God's law indeed it cannot Paul says deep down in his soul flip back to verse 22 of chapter 7 he says i delight in the law in my inner being Paul's heart is changed to loving from loving sin to loving the law that's evidence of being a believer And he has an increasing awareness of sin. Christians, we get more and more troubled with our sins than when we lived in darkness in the past. Remember, the Bible says God is light. And the closer we get to the light, the more sin is exposed, right? Sometimes Christians will say to me, I doubt my salvation. Because I feel my sins more and more now than I did maybe five years ago, ten years ago. I feel like I'm a worse sinner, not a better sinner. Or a better Christian, I should say. But Paul feels the same way. In fact, Stephen Lawson, a preacher, notes this, that in Paul's first or well, one of his first books, the book of 1 Corinthians, he confides in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 9, he says, I'm the least of the apostles. But then five years later, when he writes the book of Ephesians, Ephesians 3, verse 8, he says, not only am I the least of the apostles, he says, I'm the least of the saints. And then in his last, one of his last books, 1 Timothy, he says this, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. The longer Paul walked with Jesus, the longer he read the word and went to worship services and led worship services, the more he saw his sin. And you might say, well, Paul must have got a lot worse after he became a Christian. But that's not the case. But that God was humbling him, sanctifying him, sharpening him, showing him his sin. He's more humble, more holy the closer he got to the Lord. That's the third evidence that Paul is a believer here. And it needs to be said again, the fourth evidence. I've already alluded to it, but it deserves to be repeated that struggling with sin is a sign of sin. Of faith. He says he's in an ongoing war with sin. And he loses the battle sometimes. Look at verse 15. I do the very thing that I hate. We don't know what sin he's talking about. But he's lamenting his weakness. He falls and struggles and is broken. And then he turns to God. When someone's heart is broken by sin, when someone is devastated by moral failure, and then they look to God for mercy, it is the clearest, it is the surest sign of faith. David says in Psalm 51, Sacrifices and offerings you did not require. But a broken and contrite heart, oh God, you will never despise. That's where Paul is broken by his sin. That's the fourth evidence. And the fifth evidence I just want to mention quickly is where does Paul look for his deliverance? He's looking to Jesus, he's longing for redemption. His cry is not a cry of despair, it is a cry to Jesus Christ the Lord, verse 25. Paul is saying to his congregation, This is the real me. That he is living in the contradiction between being liberated from the power of sin, but not yet its presence in his life. He is saying to His congregation, sin is still alive and well in my heart this morning. And why do we need to see the real Paul? Why did the Holy Spirit inspire Paul to write Romans 7? Because if God was willing to save a sinner such as Paul, a Christian terrorist, that's what He was, Somebody who is a blasphemer. Who breathed threats against the church. Who thought he was blameless before God. If God is willing to save a sinner like Paul, He is willing to save a sinner like you. Think of all the Bible characters this morning of great faith in the Bible. Think of Abraham, the cowardly man who sells his wife for his own freedom. Think of Moses, the murderer. David, the adulterer. Jonah, the racist. Peter the denier, Paul the terrorist, all committed gross sins. And boys and girls, gross does not mean icky. Gross means really bad. Sins that can even disqualify you. We need to recognize this morning that God can save anyone. And that even Christians, good people, can make mistakes and fall into sin. And we say with Paul, well, why do you let this happen, Lord? You are sovereign. And sin is awful. And he is sovereign. But he is also good. God sometimes allows Christians to fall into sin. To show us the strength of sin in our own heart. And that we would be humbled. And that He might raise us up from the ash heap. And that He might teach us to have a more close and a more constant dependence upon Him. I'm a preacher, as you know. Think of how humbling this must have been for Paul to expose himself to his people. In a sermon to the Roman church, he has just confessed, I am still a great sinner. There is no such thing as a perfect Christian. So let's not act like there is. There is, no, there is nothing worse than going to church and having another redeemed sinner look down their noses at another redeemed sinner. We need to be real Christians this morning. Real with people about our victories and also our struggles so that we can gather around one another and support one another. I also have one more application that I want to bring out. Michael and Jonathan, you just took some vows in front of our church here. And in one of the vows, it said, We confess that our children are born in sin. Parenting isn't like math as much as Michael might like that, he's an accountant. It's not where we plug our kids into the right school and plug them into the right community and plug them into the right family and then therefore we'll get a good result, right? This teaches us that even people raised in the covenant struggle with sin. This teaches us that people with good parents, people who are catechized, who are Calvinists, who have the right view of soteriology and the right view of eschatology, may struggle with sin. Because the problem with sin isn't the world. The problem is our own hearts. So as we have baptized little Lydia this morning, the call for you and for me is to lead her to Jesus. Isn't that the answer for this life? The trials of life and the struggle with sin. And every Christian is going to be engaged in this warfare. That's our second point, the war within. And the warfare is not with Russia, nor is it with any worldly enemy, but the shocking teaching of Romans 7 is that the war is within us. The doctrine of indwelling sin reminds us that there is a relentless battle between the new man and Jesus and the old sinful man. Those exist in each and every one of us. And they fight like cats and dogs. Your two natures are diametrically opposed to one another. And I'm telling you today, there'll never be a truce, there will never be a ceasefire. The battle within is lifelong. And look what Paul says this is baffling to him. Verse 15 I don't understand my own actions, he says. He is perplexed by his own participation with sin. And we, like Paul, have had questions like this. Did I really just do that? Did I really just say that? Did I really just think that? If you've asked that question, you feel the war. Paul doesn't understand why he's still sinning. If I have a new heart for God, why am I struggling like this? He wants to be godly. He wants to be holy. But he keeps falling. We don't know what sin Paul is thinking of, but he only describes it as, I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. I think he's describing the law in general. He wants to worship God, but... His flesh says, just just sleep in this morning. He wants to honor his parents, but they're just so annoying. He doesn't want to be angry, but that person deserves it. He doesn't want to lust. He doesn't want to steal. He doesn't want to lie. He doesn't want to covet. But he can't stop. It's spiritual warfare. The war within. And maybe the most shocking passage in Romans seven, as I studied this, is actually verse 16. "Now I do not do what I want, but I agree with the law that it is good." I think what Paul is saying here by saying, "I agree with the law," is he's saying, "It's right. I am guilty." When I was a kid, to use this, uh, maybe it's a crass phrase, I'm not sure, we would call this getting nailed to the wall. You have no defense, there's no excuse, there's no explanation. I'm guilty. And remember, this isn't Saul talking, this is Paul, the Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of blameless, saying, I am guilty. And if anyone was to, had the resolve to be sinless, it would have been Paul. He demonstrated in his life such a vigor for sanctif- sanctification, such a destruction of sin. Authored 13 books. If anyone could have went to glory by being good, shouldn't it have been Paul? That's not his perspective. He says I'm guilty. And I'm still fighting. Still warring every day. Now, here at Trinity, we've been going through the book of Romans for the last few months. And again, I want to bring to your attention that Paul said, remember in Romans 5 and 6, that a believer is free from sin. So, what are we to make of Romans 7? Verses 15 and 19, especially. Just draw those to your attention. What do we make of being free from sin, but Paul saying, I do not do what I want, but do the very thing that I hate. How does somebody free do? Uh, somebody who's free from sin also say in verse 19, the evil I do not, what, do not want is what I keep on doing. I say again that believers are liberated from sin's power, but not necessarily sin's presence. I'd like to give you a few examples this morning to help clarify this. Say, for instance, a Christian has an isolated, one-time encounter with sin. Say, for instance, there was one night of fornication. One instance of drunkenness. Gambling one time, if you ask any mature Christian, they'll tell you if you nip it in the bud right then, is not the power canceled? One time, and then ending it there, repenting and moving on, seems to cancel its strength. But for instance, what if... One night, due to some stress or something, we drink too much wine, but then we come back the next day. And then also Friday. And then we keep coming back to it. And our bodies and our minds begin to depend on something in order to relax. This becomes what we call a compulsive behavior. And it feels like bondage, right? And then they come to their pastor or they go to a psychologist and they say, I want to quit, but I cannot. That the habit becomes a pattern. A pattern of sin. We call this in Christian counseling the neuthetic effects of sin. That we can be liberated from its power but condition ourselves to need it. We need to hear what Paul is saying. We must do war. Sin does not dominate his life. Sin is not lord over him, but he is called to the battle every day. Sin doesn't go away when we become believers. It's an ongoing struggle that each one of us has every day. So a word of application, if it takes years to create the habit of sin, and sometimes less, how long does it take to get rid of it? John Owen refers to sin like a big oak tree. Remember, if you nip it in the bud while it's a little shoot, well, you can take care of it quickly. But if you let it grow into your heart and take down roots, it's going to take a while to get rid of it. Young men, have any of you tried to cut down a tree with an axe? I remember once when I was a young guy, and my family had a tree, it was probably about six inches round, and I thought I was big enough to go down there and take it down with one fell swoop. It probably took me a year to get that thing down. I'm just joking, a chainsaw came and took care of it after that, but I thought I'd give it a try. But it takes effort. It takes taking multiple hacks and swings at a tree to get it down. Christian, what Paul is calling us to is every day we take up the axe of Jesus Christ's blood and we apply it to our sins every day. Take a swing. Take a hack. And it may take a long time. And you may fall. And you may struggle. But get up every day and keep fighting. And one day, by the power of the Holy Ghost, that tree will fall. you can burn its roots. And you can lift it out of your heart. It's not to say Jesus can't change us miraculously. My uncle was an alcoholic. And he decided he needed to get right with the Lord. And So he went to the church meeting. I'm a Methodist. Grew up a Methodist. He walked the sawdust aisle, gave his heart to Jesus came home and poured all the alcohol out on the ground outside, and my aunt said I thought he'd get on his knees and lick the dirt. And he never touched it again. Christ can change the heart in the moment, and he does. But so often it takes years, daily, all the time, fighting against sin. Christian, onward as to war with the cross of Jesus going as before. Well, we need to conclude here quickly. So, let's look at our third point, the agony of struggle and the joy of defeat. Sometimes when people are come to Christ, they begin a Bible study, maybe they start attending a church, and they consider that the Christ, or they think that the Christian walk is going to be easy. But Paul reminds us in Romans 7 that this is not the case. We have to battle with sin. And sometimes that battle is agonizing. Sometimes we have to deal with the fallout of sin. And sometimes that fallout is agonizing. You might say this morning, sin seems to be winning. My fight has only resulted in frustration and misery, and we lift up our voices for help. And the promise of Romans 7 is that God always answers. He always answers the sinner's cry for help. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, Romans 7, as I mentioned, can become quite controversial and confusing to some people. Look with me at verses 21 through 25, that last paragraph there. In order to understand what Paul is saying, we have to see that he is speaking about two types of law. He is speaking about two types of law. He's speaking first of the law as we understand it, the Ten Commandments, the law of God. But then second, he also speaks of the law as a power, as a force within him. This is evident. Look at verse 22 and 23 with me. He says, For I delight in the law of God, that's the Ten Commandments, in my inner being. But I see in my members another law. That's that power, that force of sin. Waging war against the law of my mind, the Ten Commandments again. And making me captive to the law of sin. That's that law of power in my members. Paul is saying there's two types of forces in his life. One that's pulling him this way to do what is good. And another force that's pulling him this way to do what is not good. He's being pulled in two different directions which leads him to verse 24. Wretched man that I am. Wretched refers to toil and trouble. Somebody who's painfully afflicted and miserable. These two forces are pulling on him so hard he feels like he's about to be ripped in half. That's what he's saying. Who will deliver me? Who will set me free? Who can hold me together when my sin threatens to destroy me? Paul needs someone stronger than him. Someone who doesn't have a different law in their being. He needs someone to set him free. And Paul tells us who that is in verse 25. Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul says the remedy for defeating the law of contradiction is in Jesus Christ our Lord, the only man without sin. Paul is so emphatic that this is the one who can save, who can hold you together. Notice he uses three names for Jesus. He calls Him Jesus, meaning Savior. He calls Him Christ, meaning anointed prophet, priest, and king. He calls Him Lord, referring to His sovereignty. He is the only one who can defeat that remaining sin within you. You and I are in a battle, Christian but we must not have a defeatist attitude. We must not give up and think we have lost the battle because greater is He who is in you than who is in the world. Now let us not be naive that we can attain perfection in this life. But Paul is saying that the all-sufficient grace in Christ has gained the upper hand. That Christ in you is the hope of glory. That you can fight every day with the assurance that one day all your sins will be gone. That you, won't have, you will have neither the power nor the presence when you see Christ face to face. And so Romans 8 is about glorification. That's what Paul wants us to point point our eyes to. That one day we will see Him and be like Him. In justification, God dealt with the penalty of sin. In sanctification, He's dealing with the power of sin. But in glorification, He will deal with the presence of sin. That the battle that we take up today will one day be finally won in Jesus And that not only our souls, but our bodies will be redeemed. The presence of sin will be removed. But until then, Christian, keep fighting. Now, I know we've run out of time, but one more comment. Romans 7 doesn't end on that note of victory, it ends on the note of fighting. Look at verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. But so then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. A sobering reminder that while you are still alive, keep up the good fight. So, how do we keep up the fight? Three things. Ready? Very quickly remain alert. Sleepy Christians are weak Christians. We need to be constantly examining, confessing, and repenting of our sins. Remain alert. Second, remain armed. Put on the armor of God. Treasure His Word in your heart. Pray and ask God for strength. And then third, remain active. Take up the sword and fight. Don't get passive with sin. But when Satan comes and says, I'll give you true rest and true peace and true hope and true love. You take up the sword and you thrust it through the sin and say, Jesus has something better for me. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You that You have provided us the remedy for the contradiction that we all feel in our life. And we pray now, Lord, as we have all felt this tension, we've all felt this pulling in two opposite directions, But we have heard Your Word to look to Jesus even now in this day, but also, Father, to eternity, to glorification. And so we pray now, Lord, that You would lead us there. In this moment, help us to direct our eyes to Jesus, but also for all of the days of our life to look to that day when we will be renewed in His image. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.